All right, Jimmy, it's time to get ready for our Halloween special with Frankenstein. Frankenstein conquers the world. I can't wait. How much longer before Travis gets here? Good. He is the perfect person to have on for this film. I can't wait. You have something for me? Oh, it's here on the table. Let me see. Are you kidding me? Another announcement from the board? Is it not enough that I retweet these things for him? Okay, fine. Let's get this over with. We, the Monster Island Board of Directors, can confirm that the reason Clifford the Big Red Dog has not been given a permanent place on the island is because he, in fact, is not a kaiju. Clifford will be released to his owners later this week. We wish the Elizabeth family well. <sighs> and the sad thing is that's still not going to lay this debate to rest. I guess they just had to pick up on something I said in the last episode. Hey, calm down, man. I know you really don't want to talk about the last episode, that it's a little bit embarrassing for you, but everything's going to be okay. We can move on. Okay, let's get Travis in here. Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 27, Frankenstein Conquers the World, featuring Travis Alexander. Hello! Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of the Monster Island Film Vault, Nathan Marchand, and joining me today is yet another one of my patrons. You know him as the co-host and, I might say, creator of the Kaiju Weekly Podcast, Travis Alexander. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault. Uh, <laughs> I had to do my intro, too. <laughs> <laughs> trying to steal my thunder there a little bit, I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, this is really exciting, man. I got to go back to the States and be on your show a couple of times, and now you get to come visit me on Monster Island. And I got to say, you've been a big kid in a candy store is all I got to say for what I've been hearing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, let me tell you this. Okay, so listeners, I get this mysterious box delivered to my door. And I have no idea what's in it. It's heavy. I carry it in. I find out there's a bunch of pieces and there's this instruction manual on how to put it all together. And so I'm thinking, okay, is this a contact with, uh, with, uh, you know, <laughs> contact. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's sci fi. Like I, I'm getting messages from, from some random person of build, build it. And they a will uh, come. a uh, message from space, you might say. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I put this thing together. And it looks like a platform. And so then I, I, I stand on the platform. I throw caution to the wind. I do all of the things that all the scientists in, in horror movies do uh, and don't actually protect myself or, or anything and just jump on the thing. And I get transported here what? to Monster Island. 
A teleporter? <laughs> Another teleporter? Where did this package come from? Because I'm a little terrified now. I've had very strange experiences with teleporters recently. I don't know if you heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's only par for the course for big Star Trek fans like us to have uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, Yeah, but did, did this teleporter make a lady clone of you? Because that's what happened to me. I have a pseudo sister now. It's a little strange. <laughs> and she's a magical girl and is best friends with Bex from Redeemed Otaku. It's very strange. <laughs> I like to think that there's an evil version of me. All of my evil essence was left behind. Yeah. And so that's, now- uh, that's the other thing I'm a little bit concerned about. I've seen the enemy within on Star Trek several times, many times. And I'm a little bit scared. Yeah. About so, that. So Although now this is this is you is- we're talking about here. I don't know <laughs> how much evil is actually in you to even make an evil Travis. So <laughs> <laughs> Well, all of the all of the evil essence that's left so there's just so little of it that, that I just come out very small. Yes, uh, like the yes. evil the evil Travis is only a foot tall. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, keep him away from the show Bajine. That might get ugly. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> So yeah, here I am, and of course, the first thing I had to do when I ended up on Monster Island was go and visit Godzuki, my man Godzuki, because if anybody who listens to your show is not familiar with Kaiju Weekly, we rate movies out of five Godzukis instead of five stars, so I had to meet the man himself. (laughs) The man. (laughs) uh, Okay, the the teenager himself. (laughs) He is kind of young. Yeah. Are you kidding me, Jimmy? You are the one who sent this teleporter pad to him? We talked about this. I told you to put that teleporter into storage because I don't trust it after it made me a lady clone, okay? Just, oh my gosh, you uh, you might want to say, I'm sorry, what? Travis, we may have to have Jimmy send his drones to collect this. This is It's a little bit dangerous technology. Now, you know, the, the board thing- is very touchy about letting that this stuff get out. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. And, well, the only thing I just wonder is, Jimmy, how did you get my address? Because I never gave it to you, and I'm a little concerned that you know where I live. Really? You got it from a friend of yours. Who is this friend? Oh, really? You brought him with you today. Why did you bring him with you today? Oh, yeah, I forgot. You're still reeling from the beatdown that you got from Dimagine. Not one of your shining moments, Jimmy. I can understand that. You're still recovering. You may not be quite as intrepid as you normally are, but who did you bring in to help us? Holy crap! Godzuki, you were the one who gave Jimmy my address at two, Godzuki. (laughs) Oh, don't give me that. You know, I can't stay mad at Godzuki. Godzuki, you're too fun. You're too friendly. I can't stay mad at you. (laughs) We need to have you on our podcast next time. Uh, He's still excited over the fact that he won Kaiju Clash, I think. Yes, yes. He has been, uh, from, from what I understand, he has been reminding Minya of it every day since that episode yes. dropped. 
So for listeners of this podcast who are not familiar with Kaiju Weekly, uh, every so often when we are short on news or any kind of items to talk about, we will do a segment called Kaiju Clash where we take two kaiju and we debate, me and my co-host, over who would win in a fight. It's all in good fun. We don't actually put these kaiju up against each other to actually fight. We just debate on who would win. And between Manila, Armenia, and Gazuki, Gazuki won. Gazuki was the one that I was rooting for. And yeah, Gazuki, you didn't let me down. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, he's really proud of that fact. I admit that I don't speak very good Gazuki. I may have to defer to you on that. His grunts and noises and whatever still confuse me a little (laughs) so (laughs) i've been here for a year and i still can't figure out how what he says half the time well the thing with gazuki half of it you just gotta just go with the flow and make up whatever you want because he's smart enough to understand that we don't always understand what he's saying but he knows that we're trying yes but anyway The main reason that I invited you here to the island today is we are going to be discussing Frankenstein Conquers the World, a.k.a. Frankenstein versus Baragon, or as we like to call it here on the island, Frankie V. Barry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because you're the biggest Baragon fan I know. (laughs) You know, uh, and the thing is, I wasn't a Baragon fan before starting the podcast. Uh, Like, he was fine he, he he was a fine monster but the more i watch these toho monster movies i feel like baragon just doesn't get the respect he deserves and so i started the hashtag justice for baragon and so yeah <laughs> and it has been immortalized in a t-shirt yes <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> did you take a moment to go see ya boy today before you came over to the studio oh oh absolutely absolutely had to go see i mean it, w- it wouldn't be justice for baragon if i didn't take the time to go and see baragon himself yeah i seem to remember that there was some arrangements that were trying to be made where you could actually sell some of the justice for baragon t-shirts and actually have baragon around when that was going on i mean you were getting the star treatment man is that later today yeah, yeah, later today we've got a booth set up uh, over on the island. So, yeah, we're going to have uh, a booth set up that anyone can come by. The only problem is that because, of course, my trip here was kind of unexpected, I didn't bring any of my quadruple 55X size oh, shirts. wow. So, <laughs> Some of the bigger monsters may not be able to get their own Justice for Baragon shirt, but next time I come to the island, I'll make sure to bring one for the big guy. For Barry. Barry could use one. <laughs> Yo, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I can just imagine he'd probably go walking up to Frankie. That's what we call him here. Frankie. And mm-hmm. uh, it would be like, look, do you have a T-shirt? <laughs> their old uh, rivalry occasionally flares back up so you know yeah uh, we uh, we have to keep an eye on the two of them you know sometimes they have to be separated you know they're like kids you know (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) kind of like me and jimmy sometimes i mean i'm telling you (laughs) the things we do off the air i'm just saying (laughs) but anyway so we're going to be discussing this film 
This is going to be a little bit of an unusual episode because this was another one. In fact, it's the last movie that I covered as part of an independent study that I did in grad school on Ashira Honda films. This is my last one, so I will be reading an excerpt from my paper about it. But I wanted to make sure that I had you on, but I'm like, this thing is already prescripted. What do I do? So I thought, okay, let's try this. I will read a paragraph or two, and then I'll stop reading. The two of us can discuss a little bit, and I'll go back to reading, and we'll go from there, see how it works out. Are we cool? All right, sounds good. All right, so here we go. In 1965, Ashiro Honda directed a daring, if strange, and uneven film with Frankenstein Conquers the World, known as Frankenstein vs. Baragon in Japan. It was the first of a three-picture deal between Toho and United Productions of America, or UPA, which was headed by producer Henry G. Saperstein. Saperstein had formed a relationship with Toho when he bought the U.S. rights to 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla, although he flipped it to AIP. Saperstein would co-finance the film's Honda would direct them, and each would feature Hollywood stars. In the case of Frankenstein, it was Oscar-nominated Nick Adams. Calm down! You and your man crush. (sighs) Okay. Spirit animal, whatever, I don't care, man. Anyway, as I was saying, who would return for the second co-production, Invasion of Astro Monster? Regale me about the wonders of Astro Monster later. We're talking about Frankie V. Barry. Calm the frick down. <sighs> See what I have to work with, Travis? Jeez. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Now, I'm with Jimmy on this one because, look, I'm a big fan of Nick Adams. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Akira Takarada. And watching Invasion of Astro Monster or Monster Zero the only actor who can upstand Takarada and I not be upset with was Nick Adams. So, Jimmy, I'm right there with you. Good for you. I, I mean, I do agree with you. Nick Adams is a tremendous actor. I actually didn't realize until more recently he had been nominated for an Oscar. So, mm. you know, if anyone ever wants to say, Godzilla movies have terrible acting, you can, be, you can tell them Nick Adams almost won an Oscar. Eat it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> See, Godzuki agrees too. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. So anyway, where was I? All right. Yeah, here we go. But not for Frankenstein's pseudo sequel, War of the Gargantuas, which, by the way, will be covered next month on the podcast. The titular creature is an irradiated freak from Hiroshima, making it interesting that the film was released August 8th, 1965, only two days after the 20th anniversary of the atomic bombing. Frankenstein's plight mirrors that of its survivors, the Hibakusha. And this is going to be the big thesis that we're going to be going over today, Travis. Have you talked about the Hibakusha on Kaiju Weekly? I feel like you have. I just can't remember what episode. Yeah, I can't remember what specific episode, but I know we have talked about them in a small part in the context of, was it Ultra 7? There was the, the episode yes. of Ultra 7 that was removed. Episode and not 12. In. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so we talked about the Hibakusha in, in that context of talking about why the episode was removed, our feelings on it, things like that. Yeah, that's probably what I'm thinking of. Anyway, back to the paper. The film's first 10 minutes feature its boldest moments and put forth its audacious concepts. 
It opens on Germany under siege from the Allies in 1945, followed by a scene that seems ripped from a silent universal horror film where Nazi officers storm into a scientist's lab and take the disembodied but still beating heart of Frankenstein's monster. The heart is then transported via submarine to Japan and given to the Imperial military, who entrust it to a doctor, played by Takeshi Shimura, in Hiroshima. He believes that by studying the heart, he will be able to create invincible soldiers. The bomb is dropped just as he begins to operate on it. Fifteen years later, an American doctor, played by Adams, yes, I know, Jimmy, treating radiation victims discovers a feral boy who, he learns, grew from the irradiated heart. I am going to pause here real quick because I know from your episode on Kaiju Weekly that you guys also talked about, I think it's from the dub? Is it from the dub? where they theorized that it was actually a boy who ate the heart? Is that what it was? Right. In the dub, they're offered two explanations. They say, you know, could the boy have grown from the heart or could he have eaten the heart? And there's even dialogue with the old man and Kumi Mizuno's character where he explains to her that, you know, back in the day, there was a lot of these homeless children who would just eat whatever they Mm -hmm. could find, rats, whatever. And so he was wondering if that was what this boy is. So, yeah, there is a, a debate for some people online on whether the boy was ever meant to be actually Frankenstein's monster regenerated from the heart or was he supposed to be uh, someone who was mutated after eating the heart. But I think in the context of the rest of the movie, it's really clear to show that it was like he was generated from the heart. (laughs) I completely agree. Gazuki eating a heart, especially a human heart, is gross. The whole thing, the whole idea of that is gross. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of eating, the more the boy eats, the bigger he gets. The characters debate if he is truly human, which intensifies after Frankenstein is frightened by reporters' flashbulbs and escapes into the countryside. Interestingly, when we watched the movie today, Travis, I had forgotten that it looks like those TV reporters who came in when this scene happened, I'm starting to wonder if... Because we have this quick shot of them later. I'm starting to wonder if they were actually dead because before I had been figuring that Frankenstein never killed anybody. You know, he went after animals, but he didn't kill any humans unless you look at the deleted scenes (laughs) for this movie where he's literally picking up cop cars and throwing them around. But I'm wondering, are those two TV reporters dead or not? Yeah, I always took it as they died because, uh, and now I, I still think that you're, to your point, I think Frankenstein didn't really do it on purpose. You know, he lashed out and in the process of escaping from this cage he was in, he accidentally killed the seal. But I, I took it as they died because of their ignoring this, the warnings of the scientists and stuff. Yeah, because the whole idea is that Frankenstein's not murderous. He's not. Right. He really is innocent in this manner. But again, it looks like these guys did die, which contributes to it. I'll get into that a little bit later because I do actually, to some extent, connect this movie back to the original Mary Shelley novel. And I think that's a part of it. Although the whole accidental killing thing is less the Mary Shelley novel and more like the universal version of Frankenstein, which this movie was definitely inspired by that. The look of Frankenstein in this movie is definitely taken from Boris Karloff. Minus the bolts on the neck and stuff. Right. Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure even if 
at the time that this movie was being made, if Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was even translated to Japanese for Ishiro Honda and, and the rest of the crew to even be familiar with the actual story. So, yeah, you can definitely tell they are more familiar and are drawing influences from the universal version, which is, of course, very different from the book version. And and like you say, you do get that in, in how innocent, but still dangerous if he's, you know, it, because of, of he just doesn't know his own strength uh, mm-hmm. that Frankenstein has. So, yeah, I, I totally get that. It's definitely really heavily influenced by the universal and even maybe a little bit of the of the hammer version of probably of, uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. Which I think just goes to show you that the themes for a Frankenstein story are pretty universal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Unintentional pun there. I kind of love it. <laughs> so let me get back to the paper. Oh, and here we go, Travis. It's ya boy. <laughs> a monstrous dinosaur named Baragon has been attacking farms and Frankenstein is blamed. Eventually, the two monsters clash with Frankenstein killing the dinosaur before being swallowed by a fissure in the original ending. Let's park here for a second and talk about this because there are two endings to this movie. <laughs> right. And yeah. it, I know it confused a lot of Japanese audience members because apparently the print with the second ending that was demanded by Saperstein aired on television and anybody would see the movie in the theaters. Huh? What? <laughs> right. Because Saperstein had seen King Kong versus Godzilla and loved the octopus sequence and told Honda and company, do an octopus. They're like, but we already finished the movie. It's like, make an octopus. Fine. So they put it together and it's a, uh, it's not technically an octopus. It's a, uh, what is it? Devil fish, not devil fish. Uh, yeah. They called it the giant devil fish. Yeah. In Japanese, it's the Odako. Yes. So, in that ending, which is not what we watched today in the screening room, the Odaku shows up after Frankie defeats Barry and then gets into a fight with him and then just drags him off into a lake and he disappears. Right. Which, it's which honestly a I little think, pointless, but... <laughs> well, the thing is, if you take this movie and pair it with its pseudo-sequel, and I will say pseudo-sequel because there's really not as much connections as what people like to say uh between between this and war of the gargantuas they do kind of fit together a little bit better with that ending because you get the octopus dragging frankenstein into the water and then war of the gargantuas opens with the odakos attacking a ship and being attacked by this green humanoid monster that looks a lot like what Frankenstein looks like in this movie. So yeah, I think if you keep that ending in, if you're, if you're going to watch the version that has that ending, the, it works better when paired with War of the Gargantuas. Otherwise, I prefer the original ending. Yes, I know. Boo Russ Tamblin. <sighs> I think he's just ticked that it was Russ Tamblin who clearly didn't care. And oh, yeah. instead of, <laughs> instead of Nick Adams, And let me tell you, I've seen West Side Story. West Side Story is one of my favorite musicals. I know the guy can act. He just didn't care. 
Right. Yeah, I know. It's like, yeah, watching him in anything else, it's like, obviously he can act, but he just did not want to put forth the effort in a giant monster movie. And that's sad. Uh, unlike Nick Adams, who in these giant monster movies and who knows in his personal life, I'm sure he probably thought they were strange and weird and not worth his time, but he at least put forth the effort. He's like, he had enough class that he said, I'm going to deliver 100%, even if I'm not a fan of these types of movies. Apparently, he really did like these, or at least he liked working with people like Honda. So Right, yeah, yeah, he liked working with the, with the people he worked with. I just, I don't know, I've never read anything where Nick Adams has ever said how he felt about being in monster movies, but knowing people's attitude, especially American people's attitude for these types of movies at the time period, yeah, he probably thought they were silly and not worth a lot of time, but he at least had enough class that he's like, you know what, I'm going to give it 100%. And he does. And in this movie especially, I enjoy Nick Adams acting more than I do in the other movies that you mentioned. Oh, really? Personally, for me, my, uh, my favorite Nick Adams performance is Monster Zero. See, I like Monster Zero. I think that he is great. One of the things I love is how different his character is from that. And, and people who just look at the surface may not see much difference. But in Monster Zero, he plays this kind of like, Devonair is really the best way I can describe it. He's, mm-hmm. he's kind of like a James Bond almost <laughs> kind of persona. Whereas in this, he's more respectful, more subdued, and very kind in a way mm-hmm. towards Kumi Mizuno's character that you don't I- in Monster Zero. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know what Russ Tamblin's problem is. You get to be in a movie with Kumi Mizuno, I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How can you Absolutely. be unhappy working alongside Kumi Mizuno? <laughs> yeah, and if you're talking about performances, comparing this movie to some of her other performances, I mean, I, Kumi Mizuno does a great job at everything that she's in, but the amount of stuff that she was given in this movie by the writers and, and the people behind and the scenes. Takeshi Kimura. Right. Takeshi Kimura on this uh, one. She is given so much more agency and say so in what, you know, in her, as far as her character is concerned, than in War of the Gargantuas. I think besides Russ Tamblin's kind of phoning in acting, I think the fact that Kumi Mizuno is so, just really has no agency in that film also is a detriment to it. So mm-hmm. as much as I love War of the Gargantuas, I, I have always been a bigger fan of Frankenstein Conquers the World more. I love the performances. I think everything on here works. Yeah, and uh, we'll get into that. Well, not you and me specifically, but we'll get into that on the show next month. All right, on to the paper again. Honda himself saw firsthand the devastation wrought upon Hiroshima seven months after the bombing. He had just been released as a POW from China and was riding a train that stopped in the city. He observed the damage, what little he could see through a fence outside the center of the city, from the passenger seat of a car. He spoke little of this experience to anyone, including his wife, Kimi. It left an indelible mark on him, and it served as the basis of the anti-war and anti-nuclear subtext of 1954's Godzilla. Thanks to that film, as Yuki Miyamoto explains, tokusatsu narratives inform us about post-war Japan's understanding of the atomic bombs, the nuclear arms race, and radiation exposure, which popular atomic bomb accounts rarely encapsulate. 
In Frankenstein, Honda reenacts the bombings in an impressionistic fashion using a siren and a shot of the Enola Gay high in the sky with smoke and fire created by Subaraya. As in the film, the little boy bomb detonated above a hospital, the Shima Surgical Clinic. Perhaps Frankenstein's heart was taken to that clinic in the film, putting it at the center of the blast. Elsewhere, the famous atomic bomb dome, a structure at ground zero that miraculously survived, kind of like you with the war in space, Jimmy, is seen frequently. One of the things I really appreciate about this film is we always talk about Godzilla 1954 and how much that is a response to the atomic age, the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But this film isn't using giant monsters as an allegory for these things. This movie really just like is very straightforward. Here is the atomic bomb, what happened, and here are the people who suffered from the results of it, from the the after effects of it. And it is the direct thing that plays into Frankenstein becoming what he becomes. So I always find this movie fascinating when you compare it to how subtle, but just how allegorical Honda's other movies are, that he was so straightforward in this one. I totally agree. Let's dig a little bit deeper here. From Frankenstein's outset, Honda makes no qualms acknowledging Japan's wartime fascism, going so far as to connect it to Nazi Germany. The doctor wishing to create soldiers who cannot be killed speaks to the country's militarism. The Japanese would become the superior race they believed themselves to be. Given that this was toward the end of the war, with the weary Japanese people being pushed to fight by a fanatical military, it makes sense they would jump at the opportunity for an incredible advantage that would also halt the tide of deaths from the desperate suicide attacks. It speaks to both their nationalism and desperation. Victory would be claimed through any means necessary. And I want to park here for a second because this is fundamentally different in the dub. And I was shocked to find out that the dub made this change. Because in the dub, the scientist says it's not to make invincible soldiers. It's to help heal patients, if I remember correctly. It's vastly different. Yeah, but even though they do make that change, I do applaud them. I mean, they don't shy away from the Nazis being a part of this and, and the connection between Japan and the and Nazi Germany. So uh, even though you know they do kind of water down what Japan was going to use the heart for as in their research, like you said in your paper, it doesn't shy away from that connection between you know Nazi Germany. I know it's. Honestly, a little bit shocking. The first time I watched this movie, I was not prepared for that first 10 minutes. (laughs) Oh my gosh, guys, you're actually going this far. Hot dang. (laughs) Yeah, and I wonder how much of that was because this was an American co-production because you don't see a lot of that in other Japanese films, even in, in other Honda films. You may get hints to uh, you know the connection, and you definitely get talks about how Japan's military was very fanatical and everything. But you don't really get that like direct on-screen connection between Japan and Nazi Germany. Whereas in the United States, we of course 
during the war, we had a lot of propaganda that connected Japan and Nazis together. Even though during war, no one is innocent, the propaganda that the United States had was uh, not fair either. <laughs> Very <Yes>. lopsided <laughs> on its side, to say the least. So I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that you do have an American influence on this film, even in a small way. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. It's It's just so interesting that the dub waters it down a little bit. I just, I would love to know what the thought process was in making that decision. It is interesting. Yeah. Anyway, let's continue on. The irony is while Frankenstein's heart would have created a super soldier and possibly a Japanese master race, it instead mutated into a being who joined the Japanese as a fellow victim of the atomic bomb. Despite his bizarreness, Frankenstein is a hibakusha, a word that translates to, quote, bomb-affected or exposed persons, end quote. It is a term used only for atomic bomb survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Most were horribly burned in the immediate aftermath, and in the following years, many suffered from cataracts, thyroid disorders, and chromosome disorders, while others died from leukemia, cancer, and other diseases. Worse yet, they faced discrimination in employment and marriage thanks to Allied censorship about atomic bomb-related information during the occupation that resulted in terrible rumors and misnomers about the effects of radiation. The stigma stems from the belief that they carry blood contaminated by the bombing that can be spread to offspring or was otherwise contagious. As historian John Dower wrote, the Hibakusha are seen by fellow Japanese as unwelcome compatriots in the New Japan. Psychologically, if not physically, they were deformed reminders of a miserable past. Given the unknown genetic consequences of irradiation, they were shunned as marriage prospects. The great majority of Japanese were happy to put them out of mind. By 1960, the year the film takes place, there were 90,000 people in Hiroshima still suffering from diseases caused by the bomb, with 50 dying annually from its lingering effects. Wow. Right, and this goes back to our... This goes back to what we were talking about, how on you know my podcast, uh, Kaiju Weekly, we did kind of touch on the Hibakusha in the context of that uh, Ultra 7 episode, because in that Ultra 7 episode, it portrays this monster, this alien that looks like a Hibakusha, someone who has been burned by radiation and the fallout from the uh, atomic bomb. And it kind of captures the fear that people had at that time period of these ones, that they were monsters, that they were something to be afraid of, they were something to shun. And these people became second-class citizens because of that, like you said. And so it's really interesting learning that history, because me and uh, Michael, my co-host, had a, de a debate, not a debate, but just like a discussion about should they have heard that episode or should they have left it in? And I said, well, one of the great things about this censoring it is it has brought it to the attention of people in the in North America who have who may have never heard of the Hibakusha and what was going on with them. So, you know, the fact that we get things like Frankenstein Conquers the World and we get things like that, even with the censorship of that episode, we are now made aware of this really, you know, going on in Japan at that time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just that Ultra 7 episode, but a later movie, Prophecies of Nostradamus, was mm -hmm. flat out banned because of it. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I mean, Japan, just like a lot of countries, United States included, has had a lot of problems with discrimination. The Hibakusha is just one example of a group of people Mm -hmm. who were discriminated against. But what makes it even more tragic is that they are victims of this awful thing that happened. And now they're also being victimized by the people around them mm-hmm. who are from their own culture, their own background. So, mm-hmm. so I, I like the this movie brings that to the forefront mm-hmm. and in a very real way. Mm-hmm. And as the this next paragraph will show us, Honda really does put it up front. So as I wrote. Honda illustrates the injustice of this prejudice throughout Frankenstein Conquers the World while also using it as the basis for the titular monster's characterization. Frankenstein is a disfigured freak mutated by radiation. He wanders the streets of Hiroshima as a waif, which were said to be common after the war, feared and rejected by the city's citizens. This was probably compounded by his being a Caucasian, although... I want to say right now, he is the most Japanese-looking Caucasian guy I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Since he would have been seen as an outsider, and the Japanese were notoriously leery of them for most of their history. His weird appearance made him a pariah, just as it was the Hibakusha's radiation scars that often got them branded as outcasts. Frankenstein is feared because of his raw emotional outbursts and blamed for the death and destruction caused by Baragon, despite not killing anyone purposefully. In a similar way, the Hibakusha were shunned because of misconceptions based on little to no evidence. This is fascinating since, as Miyamoto notes, an overwhelming amount of survivors' testimonies are related to the perspective of women and children. The tokusatsu genre is almost the only venue where one finds the representation of adult men who experience nuclear explosions and radiation exposure, as well as the depiction of their anxieties and fears about the nuclear age. This makes Frankenstein Conquers the World unique in Japanese cinema and literature. Though wrapped in genre trappings, it speaks to an overlooked plight and anxiety faced by male hibakusha in particular. And for what I remember of this particular essay, he also went on to talk about the Ultra 7 episode, and he also talked about the Mysterians in this context, because they were also scarred by radiation. Right. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is interesting that, that which it makes sense that when you're trying to gain the sympathies of government organizations and whatever, you know, post-war, you're trying to get support and people's, you know, sympathies towards these victims who are suffering from these things. Of course, it's known that you use women, children as, you know, use their testimonies, use images of them because they garner the most sympathy. Mm-hmm. But I, I like what you, you're bringing out here that seeing it from a male perspective is so unique to these tokusatsu films. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting that through tokusatsu, we kind of have something that we don't have anywhere else in history books, in our records. We have it preserved in giant monster films, you know, with rubber suited dinosaurs and things like that. So I, I just find that fascinating. 
Yeah, you're right, Gazuki. We are kind of bringing the mood down some. But I still think this is an important topic to talk about because this is something that I think one of the things I love about Monster Island Film Vault uh, and why I'm such a fan of the podcast is that you use these fun, you know, whereas like Kaiju Weekly, we like to embrace the silly and fun side of these tokusatsu films. But a lot of times they were used as a way of communicating difficult things to audiences who either experienced these things or to audiences who didn't experience these things. So yeah, Godzuki, I know we're going to, we're going to lighten the mood up some here real soon, but I still think it's important that we talk about this stuff. He's a really happy go lucky, easygoing Kaiju for the most part. Absolutely. Me and him are like that in that way. I'm generally a happy go lucky guy, just like you, Godzuki. So, Nathan, we are going to lighten the mood some up here real soon, aren't we? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, because now we're about to talk about ya boy. <laughs> Yay! Hashtag justice for Baragon. <laughs> what then does this say about Travis's boy, Baragon? <laughs> Improvising a little there. Considering at one point he was intended to be Godzilla in Kimura's script, there seems to still be some lingering connections to the atomic bomb. Baragon is vicious and kills indiscriminately, devastating industrial areas and rural farms. Nowhere are these justified as simple animalistic behavior. This could be a reflection of the Japanese's view of the atomic bombs and the destruction they wrought upon two civilian cities. Furthermore, if Frankenstein is a hibakusha, his being blamed for Baragon's attacks is indicative of the prejudice against the bombed survivors. While they did not drop the bombs themselves, the Hibakusha may have been seen as symbols of Japan's war guilt, making them objects of derision. And that's a really interesting thing. It's crazy to think that at one point this was going to have Godzilla in it. And I don't know if it would have been better or worse if it had been Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm kind of, uh, I, I'm with you. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. How, it would be so different. Because I, you would you'd think that Godzilla would be the dominant driving force of this movie, even with Frankenstein being the main focus of the story. You would think that they would have rewritten it to where Godzilla was a, a very bigger part than what Baragon plays. And I think that kind of might have taken away from like all of this with what we're talking about, of the message and the themes that was trying to be developed here with Frankenstein as a victim to then pair him up against one of the most popular monsters that most audiences are going to root for anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, kind of might have undermined the idea of Frankenstein as a victim, as someone to be sympathetic towards when you put him up against Godzilla, because I don't know about anybody else, but you put a monster up against Godzilla, I'm always going to root for Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of how things work. And I think even at this point, in the Japanese pop culture, I think that would have been very true for anyone who went to go see this movie, even though, I mean, assuming that there weren't any other big changes to the script outside of the fact that Godzilla became Baragon, trying to do a Godzilla movie where the focus is on somebody other than Godzilla. Good luck with that. <laughs> Those yeah. don't always get received well. Right. I'm going to stop you right there, Jimmy. I know you've been holding it in this whole time, but we are not starting a debate about whether or not it should be Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster, okay? I'm tired of hearing that. Get over it. They call him Frankenstein in this movie. Got it? Okay, we're moving on now. 
You know, you know, I know you say we're moving on, but you know, I always think of that debate whenever people chime in and will say, you know, it's Frankenstein's monster, not Frankenstein. I always just in my head imagine the corpse of Mary Shelley just suddenly reanimating and climbing and crawling out from the grave and just raising up just to stick her her rotten hand, skeletonized hand (laughs) up and just give a thumbs up. (laughs) Like, what are you expecting to get from that, people? We know, we know the story. We know that Frankenstein was the doctor, not the monster. So what are you trying to get by saying that to us? Are you wanting this recognition from the dead body of of Mary Shelley? (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you there, Jimmy, that for someone who doesn't celebrate Halloween, that was very Halloween-y of you there, Travis. I know. It, 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 hey, it fits perfectly with Mary Shelley's aesthetic as a writer and as a person. <laughs> I mean, this is, I didn't mention it at the beginning of the episode, but this is essentially the Monster Island Film Vault Halloween episode because the podcast version of this is dropping right before Halloween. So I love the fact that that's just how schedules worked out. This is absolutely perfect. If anyone needed a kaiju movie for Halloween, this should be your go-to. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> all right anyway yeah. sorry the the zombified body of mary shelley aside <laughs> <laughs> well now we're going to talk about the doctors the actual doctors in this movie the trifecta of dr kawaji tadao takashima dr james bowen calm down jimmy <laughs> and dr sueko togami oh he's getting just excited about that because he has a real crush on kumi mizuno I don't blame him. (laughs) In their attitudes toward Frankenstein represent the varied responses to the Hibakusha. These have, quote, ranged from sympathy and compassion to fear and resentment. Sueko becomes Frankenstein's surrogate mother. She advocates for his innocence and insists that he is a human and should not be subjected to inhumane experiments, such as having his limbs severed, even if he could theoretically survive them. Dr. Kawaji sees him only as a test subject and eventually as a menace that needs to be eliminated. Between the two extremes is Dr. Bowen, who shows Frankenstein compassion, but who also sees him as a means to discover medical breakthroughs. He is indicative of the American doctors who were part of the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, or ABCC, which was formed from several military medical teams who went to Japan after the bombings. Some, like William J. Hall sought to understand the Hibakusha's plight and bridge the cultural gap. Others clashed with the Japanese doctors because many on both sides were military members and the war had not been forgotten. The ABCC's charter declared it as a, quote, pure research institute, end quote. Therefore, quote, the Hibakusha were scientific subjects, not patients, the physicians employed by the ABCC were prohibited from treating the injuries that they were studying, end quote. Dr. Bowen embodies both of these mindsets. He is compassionate toward his patients and Frankenstein. He learns about Japanese culture from Sueko and teaches her American customs. Rifle and Gudicheski say this is one of the first romances between a gaijin, or foreigner, and an ana, or woman, in Japanese film. 
which I find really interesting because then those two actors have an on-screen romance in Monsters Hero. <laughs> Not only that, they have yeah. one of the rare times that there's a kiss <laughs> in a Godzilla movie. <laughs> right. We talked about this on Kaiju Weekly when we reviewed Monster Zero. That that movie came out in 67, wasn't it? Thanks, Jimmy. That's right. It was 1965. That's right. I always forget dates of movies. But yeah, that was one of the things that we talked about on Kaiju Weekly is that this interracial kiss happens in this Godzilla movie. And it's just a year before Star Trek comes out, the original series. And the, of course, most famous interracial kiss in history probably would be Kirk and Hura on that show. Mm -hmm. In Um, the episode Plato's Stepchildren. Right, exactly. And that made huge waves, of course, in America because of you know the culture that America was, uh, was at that time. But a year before that, we were having this you know, on-screen relationship between a white man and a Japanese woman in these Japanese films, these tokusatsu films. So I think that's really interesting that we put that in the context of that. Mm-hmm. And interestingly... If I remember correctly, despite all of the romantic subplots that find their way into Godzilla films, I don't think there was another on-screen kiss in a Godzilla film until 2014. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> and that wasn't just... and that one, I think that scene they're like, we got to make up for the fact that there hasn't been a kiss in a Godzilla movie in almost 60 years. Makeout session. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. They've made up for it. Uh, yeah, that was a fun fact that we shared on, on Kaiju Weekly. And I remember Michael being like, I don't think that's true. And it's like, uh, <laughs> it is. It is. It was super like, there's a lot of romantic subplots, but you never see an on screen kiss from a Japanese produced Godzilla film, except for in Monster Zero. So yep. it's just, it's such a fascinating thing. Yep. However, going back to the paper, as the film progresses, he becomes more complicit, talking about Dr. Bowen, and does not speak up for Frankenstein as the JSDF seeks to kill him, which I think is a little bit of an unfortunate thing in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps Honda, much like Mary Shelley, originally did in her Frankenstein novel, see, now I'm connecting the two just like I said I would, is using Mm -hmm. the monster to show that all people share his plight as hall writes quote in every society that has experienced unanticipated devastation we witness a rise in depression somatic illness and social phobias prompted by the realization that unannounced death could affect any of us anytime it is possible that we are now all virtual hibakusha potential survivors of unimaginable horror End quote. And, you know, I, I want to finish that quote off with another quote, because I have the Barnes & Noble Classics Edition of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Oh, excellent. And there is a quote right at the beginning. It's a really simple quote, but it says, we are unfashioned creatures, but half made up. So mm. it's just like in the original novel, where, of course, the monster is considered a freak and considered dangerous, but it always... But the, the entire novel goes back and forth of, is he any different than any of the rest of us? Yeah, that is the whole point. And that's like I said, I, I really do think that, <laughs> pardon the pun, the themes of Frankenstein are universal. You see it in pretty much every iteration of this. Even in this 
admittedly very strange, very Japanese take on that story, on that character, that's still there, even if it's under the surface. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's for that reason that I think even though Frankenstein Conquers the World was one of those movies that I didn't grow up with, you know, I grew up with Godzilla films. I watched uh, some Gamera movies when I was younger, but I, I didn't watch Frankenstein Conquers the World until I was an adult. But it has quickly become one of my favorite of the Showa era for a lot of the themes and things that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So I finish off this section of the paper by saying, The scars left by a catastrophe are not all physical. Even if the body is unharmed, the psychological, mental, and emotional damage run deep. These can lead to isolation and ostracism, and only through compassion and understanding can they be overcome. That is very true, Jimmy. You know that firsthand because you still have PTSD episodes from the war in space. I mean, nearly... Dying and miraculously surviving will do that to you, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Every time he sees a bearskin rug, he's thrown back to that. Bearskin rug. Because of the, you know, of course, the big Wookiee-like thing that was in the Yes, horned Wookiees. It took you a while to like Chewbacca again. We get it. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Well, yeah, that brings me the, uh, to the end of my paper. I do have my little concluding paragraph here that's just about Honda in general, but we don't need to get into that one. Is there anything you would like to add that we didn't cover, Travis? One of the things that I, I always thought was really fascinating about this movie is in these Toho produced giant monster movies, we don't really ever get to see the monsters eating anything. Um, you that never see true. Godzilla eat anything. You never see Rodan or any of them eat anything. But in Actually, this movie, Rodan did eat one time. He caught a dolphin in Destroy All Monsters. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I haven't seen Destroy All Monsters in a while, so I need to look yeah. out for that. And there was a deleted but, uh, scene where Godzilla ate a cow. Oh, okay. Okay. So that, that's <laughs> but it was why deleted, meme, so it doesn't count. <laughs> that's why. Have you ever seen the GIF of Godzilla walking by the cow field and the subtitle is ca- uh, uh, Mooing Intensifies? <laughs> <laughs> I think I have, <laughs> like, actually. That, that just feels more appropriate now. <laughs> but I do find it very fascinating. In this movie, you do see Baragon eat. I mean, you don't see the actual action, but you do get more than you get in most uh, monster films from Toho. Uh, Baragon eating the animals. <laughs> yeah, chickens, so, so I, I think specifically. Yeah. And uh, yeah, apparently I mean, those, those chickens were a little bit uh, larger than we thought because those feathers were huge. <laughs> the feathers were huge and there was way more feathers than the amount of chickens that were in that pit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which brings me back to something that I remember us talking about with Night of the Leafus. <laughs> no, no. Oh, no. The infamous horse. <laughs> oh, yes. Because yes, we had talked absolutely. about, I had said, they didn't have, 
the real bunnies attacking a miniature horse. I don't mean like a real miniature horse. I mean like a little doll horse like we ha like Superaya did in this movie. And when someone asked him, why did you use such a goofy looking puppet for this horse and not a real horse or something like that? And he said, because it was funnier. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or it was fun. <laughs> so yeah, it was I'm fun so I'm thinking like because there's a if I remember correctly, there's a scene where the rabbits attack a horse, but it's just a really weirdly shot sequence of a guy in a rabbit suit tackling a real horse. I'm like, they should have had the bunnies go after a tiny toy horse, the cowards. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. You know, Super Raya was always willing to try new things. It's, it's not like this movie couldn't have used a real horse. I mean, the, we see real animals in it. it. It was just a moment of Subaraya just saying, eh, I want to do it. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, I he had a, a funny looking miniature puppet boar too. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it is, it is so funny. And I, you can actually online, there's pictures of the horse puppet and what it looks like on set and stuff. And it's such a funny thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's great uh is there anything else because you know i'm wrapped up with all of my notes and stuff i can't think of anything other than like i said i i just want to you know talk about again the nick adams his role in this is very different than you get in monster zero so if you're someone who has only seen Godzilla films and has not branched out into other giant monster movies and you want to watch this movie, when you watch it, pay attention. I encourage anyone to watch it. Pay attention to Nick Adams and, and his subtlety in this compared to the very avant-garde, very debonair, kind of very full of himself and arrogant, but not in a not in a, a negative way. You know, he kind of earns his arrogance in that movie. But just he <laughs> does, you can earn arrogance? That's new. <laughs> he earns Nick Adams, if anyone can earn arrogance, it's Nick Adams and Akira Takarada in Monster Zero. They earned it in that movie. But no, I just can't think of the right word for it, but it's arrogance in a positive way because he's just, he's sure of himself. That's, I guess that's a better way of doing it. He's very sure of himself. In this movie, he is a little bit more vulnerable when he's with Sueco and when he's interacting with her. It's not as ladies' man, Sean Connery, Bond style. It's more respectful, more as peers. You know, she's a scientist and a doctor too, and she's studying and he doesn't treat her as, oh, you're the woman doctor. No, she is an equal peer with him and he treats her that way. And, I, and in the 1960s, to have a man treat this woman who not only is a woman, but of another nationality, to treat her as an equal and to treat her with the respect that they do in this movie is something. I think that's something to really be praised. Yep, Jimmy. Yeah, I, I know you agree with me on everything about Nick Adams. Me and you may disagree on who acted better in Monster Zero, Takarada or Nick Adams, but we'll always be bonded over our love for Nick Adams. <laughs> I'm sure. I only have to hear about it every day. <laughs> his uh, his man crush there yeah <laughs> all right that's me and that's me with takarada i have the hugest man crush on takarada so <laughs> well does it make you jealous that i've met him <laughs> I, I have met him too so oh have you because i have met him too so yeah <laughs> that's cool that's really cool 
Gazuki, that's a great question. You know, on Kaiji Weekly, we always use Gazuki as a benchmark for how we rate our movies. So I would give Frankenstein Conquers the World, a.k.a. Frankenstein versus Baragon, five out of five Gazukis because I just love this film so much. Ah, dang. I, I don't remember the score being that high when I listened to the episode. Have you changed your mind a little yeah. bit? Yeah. I have. I have gone back and revisited this film and revisiting it with you here for, for Monster Island Film Ball. I always really loved this film, but early on in Kaiju Weekly, I don't know, I was more conservative with my scoring and my giving of Godzuki's. Um, but I have, I have, I have found Godzuki that, like, is snickering right now. I can see it. He's covering his mouth because right. he doesn't want you to see it. <laughs> yeah. But I have learned that it's like, A, it's my score. Who cares? I'm going to say what I I'm going <laughs> to give it what I want. And two, I do what I want. <laughs> I do what I want. It's my podcast. I'm going to do what I want. Um, so yeah, I have given it, I, I have changed my tune towards that. I think that because uh, really when I give uh, something a five out of five, even though even whether it's stars or Godzuki's, is how much of the movie would I change? Would I change anything about the movie and how much of the movie would I change uh, if I was to redo it? And this is one of those few movies that I'm like, I don't want anything to change about it. I like the movie the way it is and I think that there's nothing that could be done to it that would make it any better. Wow. 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 You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll put a link a to your episode movie. on this in the show notes, but wow, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> he upgraded yeah, his now, score. I, I will say that that episode is it's episode nine of our podcast, and we are almost to episode 50. So I know you're coming up to your first anniversary now, too. Right, exactly. And so a lot has changed on the podcast since episode nine, not the least of which is that that episode was the first time my co-host, my regular co-host yes. now, uh, <laughs> he ever appeared on the show was on that episode. So we were still kind of getting to know each other. We didn't know much about each other. So, so yeah, a lot. So, so if listeners, if you, if you go back and you listen to that episode of Kaiju Weekly, just remember a lot has changed. <laughs> 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 we have grown. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, Close out this conversation and move on, Travis, to a very important segment on the show because you're a part of it and now you really get to be a part of it, which is the Patreon shoutouts. Woo! Eli Harris, Michael Ham and Egg Sandwich. And cheese. <laughs> and me, Travis Alexander. Danny Damana. Chris Cook. Bex from Redeemed Otaku. <laughs> oh. oh my gosh, ham and cheese sandwiches. I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> it has. It has. Oh, I pulled that's it a past thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I pulled it from an old one. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, listeners, Travis has gotten into a little bit of a habit when he introduces Michael on Kaiju Weekly to give him funny-sounding, often punny <laughs> names. Yeah, his name's Michael Hamilton, so I, uh, I I like to play around with the ham. 
part of an egg. <laughs> I'm waiting for green eggs and ham at some point, unless that's already been done. <laughs> nope, not yet. Uh, green that's, eggs that's... and Michael, uh, green eggs and Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> Michael yeah, Green Eggs yeah. and Hamilton. There you go. <laughs> sorry, not sorry, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Finally, Travis, give us your shameless plugs before we close everything out. Well, everyone can listen to me if you enjoyed my beautiful, beautiful voice on the Kaiju Weekly Podcast, which is the weekly podcast that introduces people to the wide world of giant monster movies. We are one of the few kaiju-related podcasts that are actually weekly. We put out an episode every Wednesday, so we do not miss a week. You can also follow me on Twitter at Kaiju Weekly or check out Instagram where you'll see a lot of pictures of my cat because she is the producer of our show and the mascot and so we post pictures of her on the Instagram, uh, Kaiju Weekly Pod. Well, Jimmy, she's not as intrepid, but only slightly more annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Zing! Well, I am honored to know that I have been blessed by the great Godzuki himself. <laughs> oh, yay. Oh, he's going to let that go to his head now, too. I mean, now he's going to be bragging to Minion that not only did he beat him in a fight, but now he gets to go bless the other kaiju, and he can't. Probably say something <laughs> about how you, Minion, are an unholy abomination. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, just don't let Michael hear about this because he's still hurting from the defeat that he got from <laughs> from Kaiju Clash. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, one last bit of housekeeping before we shut everything down. Our next episode will be, and this will make you happy, Travis, because we're going to get some Harryhausen up in here. It's going to be Beast from 20,000 Fathoms with my friend Nick Hayden. Wow. Love it. Love Harryhausen. Cannot wait to hear it. Yep. And then after that, as I've already been hinting at throughout this entire episode, next month's mini analysis, well, extended mini analysis, will be War of the Gargantuas, and I will be joined by Ben Chaffins. So if you enjoyed Frankenstein Conquers the World, come back next month to hear about its pseudo-sequel. And I do mean pseudo-sequel. It's a little strange. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's there is not as much of a connection as what I I always hoped there would be between the two. (laughs) Yeah, just kind of how things roll like that. All right. (laughs) Well, you've got an appointment to keep at your booth and with your boy, Baragon. So I won't keep you any longer, my friend. Although we'll let you take the teleporter back to where do you live again? I forget. (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, Jimmy, uh, do me a favor, lose my address. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. I don't need any evil clones, mini or not. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> All right. In light of that, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!